Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Have you been brought down by the left-wing economic establishment? Did you have loads of good ideas that were foiled by communist fund managers, Marxist bond traders, and FT journalists who are followers of Chairman Gonzalo's Peruvian shining path? Then you could be in line for a big cash payment. Just visit telegraph.co.uk. Our operators, Alistair Heath, Fraser Nelson, and some bow-tied 12-year-old called Oliver, are waiting to hear from you. Act now. There's a free Parker pen just for inquiring. And don't forget to use the code... Pork markets. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? with me, Andrew Harrison. We're getting cranked up for the live show next Wednesday, the 15th of February at the Leicester Square Theatre. Ian, Alex, Ros and Aisha will be on and there's a ticket link in the show notes, so don't miss it. But before that, today's show. Don't call it a comeback. Liz Truss jumps out of her political grave. Will we need a bigger lettuce? Plus, stuck for something to say, small-c conservative commentators are insisting that you can't level up until you tackle antisocial behaviour. Is this anything more than the same old yob story? And Australia has decided not to put King Charles on its newest $5 banknote. But who should be on our money? And have you got change for an Attenborough gov? Right, let's say hello to the panel. Ian Dunce is the co-host of Origin Story, our companion podcast, and the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't... Why It Doesn't... Why It Doesn't... <laughs> How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, which will be out on the 13th of April if he finishes it. Hello, Ian. How are you? Oh, uh, yeah, very well. Very well indeed. Thank you. Have you got, like, an uh, editing hand, kind of? No, more like editing brain, just that anxiety-riddled frenzy of, of horror and exhaustion that comes right. across you in the latter stages. Okay, of well, you're not going to get any special treatment today. So, look, no, quite R- right. Rishi Sunak is threatening to take Britain out of the European Convention on Human Rights, saying it'll, it will do something to solve the small boats crisis. Mm. Meanwhile... UK negotiators think that the European Court of Justice will have a role in Northern Ireland if there is a deal. Mm. So this is obviously driving everybody insane. What is? What are you <laughs> expecting? What's that, what is going to happen? Well, the first thing is that he almost won't, certainly won't remove us from the Convention of Human Rights. The Tories have been promising this for ages. I mean, like Cameron promised it back in the day. Back, oh. in, back in the day when he'd be like, oh, there's this bloke, you know, behind the scenes called Dominic Raab. Huge brain, massive brain. He'll take care of this stuff. He'll, he'll figure it all out. Theresa May, pro- I think every single Tory since 2010 has been promising it. It'll never happen. Because to do it, you have to extract yourself from this extremely contorted legal position. It's an absolute fucking horror show and they ultimately won't do it they just like saying it because it excites the right people at the same time the european court of justice it's going to be somewhere in whatever the protocol arrangement is because Uh, it's the body that rules on what european law is you're you're never going to have any kind of arrangement that involves the eu that doesn't involve them in some extent so you would expect there to see some kind of semantic smudge 
that is designed to save the blushes of Rishi Sunak while not really changing anything at all. And presumably, the ERG lot will cotton onto it pretty quickly. And then you'll get the ensuing fireworks that you can easily predict. So it's like your mum saying, if you're really, really good, we'll leave the European Convention on Human Rights. But actually, it never quite happens because you're never, you're never good enough. Marie Leconte is a columnist and the author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Hello, Marie. Hello. How's it going? Uh, I'm OK, thank you. As you can hear from my voice, I'm uh, recovering from a cold, but I am surviving. Well, it's, it's a great sound, actually. I think you should adopt this as your regular voice. Very good. <laughs> Just take up smoking again. Fine. There you go. I must. So um, the actor, Eva Green, has defended herself in court over intemperate text messages about fucking peasants and things like that by saying she wasn't rude, she's just French. And I read a feature in The Guardian headlined, just like Eva Green, I'm French and I'm rude, by someone called Marie Lecant. What do the French have a special dispensation to be rude? Um, so I would like to start this by saying two things. The first one is that I'm slightly cross, actually, at the, at the Guardian sub-editors because the piece I wrote was unbelievably tongue-in-cheek. Like, not a sentence in that was serious. And then they made it sound like I was spitting at the screen, uh, which I have been mocked for days and days, my friends. Like, the screen grab has been sent to me in so many WhatsApp groups. No doubt. Since the, but yeah, it's been awful. Um, and the second thing is I'm actually very disappointed because the only reason why I wrote this piece was so Evergreen would notice me and maybe be like, oh, hello, would you like to be my wife? <laughs> uh, and that's not happened yet, uh, which I'm very really sad about. Uh, no, so the French thing, well, I mean, listen, um, A, I, I, you know, and as I kind of said in the piece, I do think that there is some merit to just being quite rude and upfront sometimes because at least that means that you say what you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think, you know, every nationality will have its own annoying things or like things that are annoying to other countries. Um, I could make a very long list about things I find annoying about your people. Um, so I think, yeah, we should just be allowed to be quite rude sometimes. That was a very diplomatic answer. You've got native. <laughs> Our special guest this week is a reporter for The Times and a member of their prize-winning parliamentary press gallery quiz team, Jerry Scott. Hello, Jerry. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. I don't know how I'll ever top that achievement. It's the pinnacle of my life. What is the quiz team's name? Oh, it was just the times. That's very boring, isn't it? But I think you can be boring when you're that good. Yeah, you, it's, it's <laughs> wow. got to be like a quiz. Wow. needs to be quiz team Keeler or something like that. I don't know. So uh, Dominic Raab is going to be breathing a slight sigh of relief as Parliament is going to enter recess. He's got 24 complaints against him, written statements coming in to corroborate them, and The Times is reporting that Simon Case knew about all the allegations against Raab before he was hired by Rishi Sunak. Who's going to go first, Simon Case or Dominic Raab? I mean, it's a flip of the coin at the moment, isn't it? I think Simon Case, you find him at the centre of all these things repeatedly. I mean, the man is supposed to be anonymous to the public and he ends up on our front page more than, well, anyone else, really. So I think it's a toss of the coin. Um, We're expecting a mini reshuffle um, pretty soonish, but that doesn't sound like Rob's going to go in that. So I think he's stuck around for a bit longer. First up, it was that pesky left-wing economic establishment all along. In the latest episode of The Perils of Penelope Pork Markets, Liz Truss <laughs> treats us to 4,000 words of self-exculpation in The Telegraph. And, by the way, if you want an official left-wing economic establishment mug, there's a link in the show notes. Among the masses of excuses that she proffered, she was never given a realistic chance to cut taxes. Nobody wondered that the mini-budget would put Britain's pensions at risk. A big boy called Quasi did it and ran away. There was one particular pearl. She expected her mandate 
mandate to be respected, a mandate of 81,326 votes from Conservative <laughs> members. Meanwhile, Valentine's Day is approaching, so it's only fitting that Boris Johnson should make his return to TV interviews with a love-in with Nadine Dorries. He told Dorries on a new TV show that his post-Prime Ministerial life involved reading to his children and painting to master the form of the cow. What do we make of these <laughs> exciting returns from beloved former characters and will it mean a thrilling <laughs> season finale? For Rishi Sunak, Ian, um, the trust budget created a thirty billion pound black hole and four thousand words. That works out at seven point five million pounds a word. Why can one get freelance rates like that these days? I don't know. I don't know that she's charging more for her word rates than I am. Did you read the comeback article all the way through? I did. What did you make of it? Uh, well, it may surprise you to learn that I didn't think it was particularly convincing. <laughs> <laughs> it's primarily. Uh, I mean, there's no point really exercising any kind of political analysis, I don't think. It's, it's really a psychological process that you're going through, yeah. just trying to work out what is going on in this person's brain. And I suppose the thing that's going on, I, see, I, I don't think it was that different to the stuff that David Davis was saying at his Institute for Government Q&A towards the, the end of last week. It was just like, it's not my fucking fault. He's just like, you know, obviously I said this and it turned out to be wrong. I said this and it turned out to be wrong. And then for this, just like, I said this and it turns out that I detonated the entirety of the national economy. Mm-hmm. But it's not my fault. You know, no, there was a point where she says, no one warned me. No one warned me about the benches. He's just like... Sadly, I can't read. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Everything said. But it's just, you fucking sacked the permanent secretary of the department. Like, you literally excluded the OBR. And then, and then you're like, oh, and no one warned me. And like, yeah, there's a reason no one warned you. It's mm. because you silenced or sacked anyone that might be in a position to tell you about what was about to happen. But nobody warned her that sacking the people who would <laughs> warn her, and then nobody warned her that sack, ignoring the et cetera. It's just warnings all the way down, isn't it? Indeed. So, yeah, like, I, I wasn't full of... I wasn't full of compassion for her, I have to say. And, I, and she did just sort of sound like someone that had lost the capacity to assess empirical reality. And I don't mean it in some kind of highfalutin political way. I just mean like she, she's not looking at the things that are happening in the objectively real world and changing her psychological assessments on the basis of it. She's just lost in an internal fantasy land where she is the hero of the fairy story. So it's, it's, I thought it was pretty dispiriting stuff. And if... In, you know what? If you're a close friend of hers, you would think we need to sit down and have a fucking chat right yeah. now and just, you know, and actually just have a conversation with you about what it is that you are doing. And the fact that she's coming out and doing this stuff, I think probably suggests that she doesn't have people around her that are close enough to actually make those interventions. Jerry, are you excited by the 4,000 words uh, tablet from the mountain? I'm always excited for anything that makes an evening on Twitter uh, more interesting. Um, So, yes, but I think that's right about not having any friends around her. People I've spoken to who you would call Trussites, really, her mm. main supporters in the kind of last 24, 48 hours. She hasn't got many outriders. Have you seen many people tweeting in support of it? No. Have you even seen those people who were at her side during her leadership election saying this is this is the right thing to do? No. Even if they still agree with the premise and the idea and they might mm. still want to cut taxes and yada, yada, yada. They still don't, they now don't think she is the right person to have done it. They don't think she is the right vessel to have carried that message. Um, I think they think it's pretty ill-advised. Um, but, you know, as a as a piece of fantasy to read of an evening, um, I don't think it's think it's too bad. Um, it's but, better than you know, Lord of the Rings or worse? Uh, I mean, I stayed awake, but uh, it's a little <laughs> bit shorter, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> that's that's really my main review. <laughs> 
I mean, Marie, one thing you've got to say uh, is that she doesn't seem she doesn't let herself get discouraged, has she? She's an inspirational story in many respects. She does not. So I think I can remember who tweeted. Someone made that point on Twitter, and it was very funny of saying actually maybe we spend too much time saying that women feel too much shame and should just behave the way they want because feminism. Like she listens too much. <laughs> She's doing <laughs> her too far. We've gone too far. <laughs> Give yeah, me that the, lack of self awareness. <laughs> I was just reminded of you know that story in the Onion from years ago. Literally everything a woman does is now empowering and we can now add <laughs> destroying the economy empowers women oh yeah girl boss yeah yeah it's astonishing isn't it i mean ian a, a senior conservative unnamed obviously is reported to have told emily Maitlis that the only people shouting come back at liz trust will be wearing white coats <laughs> um and she she hasn't sort of in any way been discouraged by the backlash there is still a low tax tory grouping in there and the only vo- encouraging voices that you seem to see are in a spectator column is there any other vehicle for low-tax, growth-at-all-cost Toryism apart from through the flawed but given this indefatigable vessel that is Liz <laughs> Well, not, I mean, not immediately. Mm. I mean, I suppose you could say, for, you know, maybe if Boris Johnson was to get back, I mean, he can be moulded into pretty much any political shape, you know, he thinks is going to be most suitable for him at a given moment. He would happily support that agenda if it was useful, or the opposite agenda if that happened to be useful. So I suppose there's that. And, of course, there's the mass ranks of the Tory parliamentary party, most of whom are completely in line with that. I think what's happened is that there's no realistic appraisal of uh, a reduction in public services to go with it, right? Mm. Like, it's quite easy to be like, oh, I want to cut a bunch of taxes. It's fine. And go for it. But also, there is a there is a cottery to that, which is that eventually you are going to have worse public services. And that part, no one's really willing to say that part. She wasn't willing to. And if you read the stuff, she still wants public services basically at the level they are now, or I suppose higher, given that right now they're completely falling on their arse. Mm. So you just sort of think, I mean, who's the person in the Tory party that's having the meaningful philosophical conversation? Because, and I don't want to do this. I don't want to do the why Thatcher was sort of all right, really. But like, at least Thatcher genuinely had a sort of I do accept that there's going to be less public service and we want there to be less public service because it's against the individual and again blah 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 I don't see any of that I still see a kind of this fantasy land you know that the treasury is always slagging off which is basically you know why do you want to have Scandinavian public services you know without willing being willing to pay the taxes to pay for them and I was gonna say I think the economist did quite a good piece on that recently saying that we're still suffering from long johnsonism mm-hmm. um, or you know cakeism you can call it mm-hmm. as well I think and, and I think you know that is still a direct uh, result of the of the referendum, I think, in the aftermath of the referendum, of saying actually you can just stand on a platform and say, well, I think we all agree that you know nice things are nice and bad things are bad, mm. and we're not really willing to go into much more detail than that. And uh, <laughs> that's kind of it. But the second thing as well, I think, and I wrote my column on that today, is that, and I think you mentioned that earlier, um, Jerry, is that there are just no real like intellectually interesting and compelling outriders left. And I think that's why you get Tory MPs interviewing other Tory MPs about Tory MPs on television now on weirdly two different channels. But that's because there's no one left. Like, there's mm-hmm. no one else left. And I think that, you know, and that's why the party is also, I think, uh, suffering on an intellectual level. Where is, like, there used to be these big debates, right, in local associations in the parliamentary party, like, you know, Heath versus Thatcher, Wets versus Dries, uh, Europe, you know, Europhile versus Eurosceptic. Mm. Like, where the fuck is that debate in the Tory party now? Like, if you ask local members, you say, like, what are you guys kicking off about? And even during Johnson's time, you're like, you guys kicking off about this state aid, public spending, it seems to go against your whole ideological... It's like, no, not really, we haven't really sort of noticed it's happening. Well, they, they, just, you, they held it until the leadership debate in the summer and then tore each other to pieces. Yeah, at that level they did. They just stopped completely. At that level they did. At that level, it's true, between Sunak and her, that there was that battle. But honestly, in... in 
in the grassroots of the party, you don't see it either. Like we, we, we give Labour shit for being an absolute factional bloodbath, which it is and not pleasant to be a part. But you know what? The Tories could probably use a dollop of that factional bloodbath within their own party so they could at least come to have a coherent ideological position on something. All right, what we could learn from the witch trials. Exactly. Kind of thing. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's towards a new witch trial. The title of my new book, yeah. Uh, for what it's worth, the sense I get um, internally, I don't know if, Joe, you've had that as well, is that I think... You know, A, your lot of Tory MPs are absolutely knackered in, like, Tories mm. in general. Mm-hmm. But B, I think the sense that there's a sense under Sunak that they're like, you know what, this is actually broadly stable for the first time in so long and we worry that anything we do or say will just be, like, start the chaos again. So I think that there's a slight traumatised edge to it of going, <laughs> if we don't move, like, if we play dead for longer, <laughs> maybe it'll be fine. Well, like possum <laughs> conservatism. <laughs> just, like, like curled up. <laughs> God. I mean, Jerry. I mean, it, it's it's bad form for journalists to sort of look at other people's papers and sort of be making criticisms. And we hate doing that on this podcast. <laughs> what, what, what does the Telegraph get out of this? I mean, because they this is the second wild, very strange front page they've run in a, in a week. The other one involved people wearing cardboard masks in a bath. This one was at least from a real human being with a real story. But it's, it was an odd thing, wasn't it? It's just basically say, "Hello, weather platform." Thank you for putting the picture in my head of Liz Truss in a bath with a um, paper face mask on. That will die with me. Um, but. Look, I mean, the Telegraph got a scoop, right? They got yeah. a they got an op-ed from a former prime minister. I think any newspaper would have taken it. I think it's probably a natural home for that as well, as well as her interview with um, Spectator TV. But there's been a lot of commentary about how, you know, she's going to friendly press. I actually think it's different. I think she's gone to friendly readers and viewers um, rather than the newspapers being particularly friendly. So I think that's interesting. Um I don't think the party really want to hear from her and that's the problem. You know, we talk about not having any outriders, that's fine. We talk about associations, I don't think they want to hear from her because they're the ones that are knocking on doors and they're on the doorsteps, they're Mm. hearing the anger. Um, I don't think, you know, her fellow MPs really want to hear from her. You see her striding around Parliament quite often with her security detail. Not many people stop to talk to her and I spend a lot of time in Portcullis House just kind of like eyeing people up and wondering what the hell is going on and... You really don't see her, you know, chatting with many people in the same way that actually even you see Theresa May doing or obviously Boris Johnson because everyone flocks to the man. Um, So I really don't think she's got many friends left. And I think that's why we're seeing her do this kind of legacy making that she's trying to do rather than the flash in the pan kind of failure that it ended up being. It is strange the idea of a legacy after 44 days. Well, yes. Well, she gets the 150 grand if she wants it for the um, yeah. for her office. So I imagine she's going to be setting up an office of Liz Truss and building a legacy that way. But who knows what it can possibly be? Imagine if she was the American president with the tiniest library ever. The, big, the tiniest <laughs> library, yes. Uh, Marie, moving on. Um, Jerry just mentioned Spectator TV and and you know the kind of the, the channeling of this stuff through super narrowcast media. Boris Johnson's debut on Fright Night with Nadine Dorries. This, the distraction this time was I paint cows. Everybody knows he doesn't paint cows any more than he like, makes boxes of, makes buses out of boxes. Why? What's it for? I mean, you've admitted you didn't watch it because why would you? But what have you taken away from what, the, what happened there? So weirdly, I, I am going to stand up for Boris Johnson here and think you cannot possibly make up painting cows. Mm. But that's not, and also he does have, you know, currently in the house that he lives in, two young children assorted with question mark children in question mark other houses. Um, so I could see that, actually, if you're a dad, you know, and you've got quite young kids, you may end up being like, hang on. I, I think he just really likes attention. And, like, listen, right, um, you know, Nadine Dorries loves him. Like, she adores him. If someone came up to me today and was like, oh, do you want to be interviewed on, like, 
just about primetime TV by someone who loves you and will give you just a nice interview, a nice half hour to talk about how great you are, would you like to do it? I would. Like, I, I would do that. <laughs> yeah. So actually, so weirdly, you know, I feel like I kind of understand why he did it. But is it really a relaunch for him? Because it's just it's just like the it's like the paddling pool of relaunches, isn't it? It's like they kind of dip your toes in. It's not. Really, is it going to move the dial at all for Boris Johnson? So I think that what Boris Johnson is really good at is or was really good at before he became prime minister was kind of seeming unavoidable. So he was always everywhere, like a sort of like weird shadow haunting the Conservative Party. So be that a conference where he'd always speak at, you know, about a million different fringe events. Uh, in Parliament, kind of being around as well, and occasionally going to the terrorists, but only when you didn't expect him to, etc. So like, he like he does that. That's what he does. He's kind of always lurking around, and and so as a result, I think even doing something that is you know is just talk TV. It's not like the BBC or anything, and then it's Nadine Dorries, but it's still like oh no, it will get lots of publicity. It'll still be two to three days of media about Boris Johnson. So again, like, mm. that is what I think he does best. Just sort of being around all the time. Yeah, Jerry. I mean, you've been writing that um, weirdly. He's been kind of focusing on his constituents in Uxbridge, which is like a first. <laughs> after he's found where Uxbridge is. Um, have we any idea how the people of Uxbridge feel about this? Because they seem to be quite shirty about his behaviour. Yes, I mean, as ever with these things, it depends who you ask. Um, if you ask the uh, schools that he goes to visit, well, I'm sure they um, they'll say they have a great time because the kids love him because he's kind of a looks a bit like a clown, doesn't he? So um, I'm sure that's very entertaining, but. Like I think any constituency of any one who has served as a minister or a prime minister who have been searching the public eye for so long are going to feel a bit, a bit bruised and battered, aren't they? Because they don't have their MP sitting at a surgery every week. And I think Boris Johnson does do surgeries, to be fair. But, you know, talking about the mould in their house or the fact that they can't get on the phone to the council or there's not enough bins for the dog mess in the park or anything like that. I don't really see him doing those issues. But at the same time as saying that he's prioritising Uxbridge, he's also got half an eye or another seat somewhere else in the country that might be a bit more safe. And at the same time, is spending a lot of time over in Ukraine. So um, it's 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 difficult to know where he is at any one point. Um, he might be, you know, painting his cows. I seem to remember one of those photos from his multiple holidays last year. He was um, painting on a canvas in one of those long lens photographs of him in his um, swimming shorts, which um, is an image to give back to you in return for the Liz Truss in a bath one. Um, So who knows where he is at any one time. But yes, I could imagine his constituents are a little sick of him by this stage. You mentioned Boris Johnson doing surgeries. I just had this image of him sort of somebody coming in and saying, what about the bins for the dog put in the park? And it concludes with Boris Johnson saying, would you possibly lend me (laughs) (laughs) £5,000? This has been usually the way he he does these things. Um, I mean, there will come a point one day when we don't have to talk about Boris Johnson on this podcast anymore, but Ian, the National Audit Office is looking at whether the taxpayers should be footing his legal fees for the Partygate inquiry. This festers; it gets worse and worse as time drags drags on. What is we're in the region of two hundred thousand pounds of legal fees or something mm. like that now? Rishi Sunak has to be looking at this as a as a kind of a bit of a, a bit of a running sore on the face of the party. Is it kind of keeping Sunak boxed off in that, like, he can't move too strongly on on Johnson and Partygate because he's implicated himself? Yeah, but I don't know how much people remember that, really, Mm. at any level. I don't think the readers of newspapers, I don't think the people writing for them remember it too strongly. I think the problem is he's sort of found himself into this kind of uncanny valley of condemnation. PMQs the other day, he basically equated Boris Johnson with, uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the starmer. He was like, you know, when when your guy misbehaved, you stood by him. When my guy misbehaved, you know, I, I cut myself. And you're like, whoa, that was fucking 
That was very brave, Minister. Yeah, yeah you're just like, you're sure? Okay, so that's it. So, the, so at some moments, he's the he's the naughty one. that he, he was very brave to distinguish him from, but he can't really go the whole way with that, mm. which, to his credit, Starmer did do, even though I think the risks were comparable to him in the early days, you know, really turning decisively against Corbyn. Yeah. I don't think you get the impression that Sunak's going to, going to do that because he knows, and this comes back to that, Convention of Human Rights, European Court of Justice stuff, because he knows that he's going to operate as this transmission system for discontent within his own parliamentary party. He's charismatic, could be good at harnessing it, good at using it, especially after the May local elections against him. So he sort of found himself in this odd place where he sort of condemns him, but only if you sort of decode what he's saying, but he's never going to come out and sort of say it clearly. So no, he's he's a bit stuck in a strange place on this one. So just to wrap up, who who do we think poses the bigger threat to Sunak, Johnson or Truss? Jerry? Oh, it's a good question. I think it's going to have to be Johnson because, you know, even though Truss is arguably more destructive in so many ways, um, Johnson is the one that I think is going to have the longevity and kind of hang around. He'll be there when they're in opposition. He'll be there if they're back. Um, He's going to be the constant kind of, you know, ghoul behind Sunak. And Sunak can't shake him either. You know, Rishi stood against Liz. He can quite easily separate himself from her a bit more. He was Boris Johnson's chancellor, so has to kind of take some of that on board. I don't think he's going to be able to shake him quite so easily. Marie, what do you think? So I actually agree. The only thing I will say is that I think with trust is that I feel like with someone like her, there's always a chance that I'll do something completely mental. And as we know from a very short premiership, she can just wake up one day and choose violence. Or like just jump, punch up, <laughs> jump up and punch the speaker or something. No, no, but you know, like, you know like we, we, we have no idea what she's capable of, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, that, that would worry me quite. So I think I can really agree that I think on the long term, 100% Boris Johnson. But I feel like trust would keep me up at night in such a specific way. Yeah, because like... Johnson is kind of like Lex Luthor, but she's the Joker. Yeah, no, exactly. She's just like, what the exactly. hell is she going to do? You know, Ian, who's the bigger threat? Uh, if it's about if it's after if it's after the May election, Johnson is the bigger threat. If Sunak is still in place by the time we get to the general election, I think Truss is the bigger threat mm. because what she reminds voters of and the kind of toxicity that she represents and just bringing that into the narrative. It won't help that he warned about it and replaced it, to, to be completely fair to him. That won't help. It will just be like, look at how much these guys have catastrophically fucked it up. I loved it when he did his video and he said that he was brought in to replace it. Like it was a headhunting job. <laughs> like it was kind of all, all like, you know, quite, he'd been signed. In the, like, well, <laughs> well, no, he was, he, 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 to, you know, it, 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 it was as if it was kind of like, there was a vacancy on the board of some company <laughs> and they got, got the guy from Unilever and said, you can do this, or the guy from Allied Biscuits or whatever. The thing that gets me is like, it's like we're in the era of you don't want to do it like that, Prime Minister. You don't remember the guy from the Fast Show? You don't want to do it like that. Mm-hmm. No, Harry Enfield, it was. You don't want to do it like that. Never actually getting involved. We just stood there being a pest. Never <laughs> That's cool out. being French. Yeah. There you go. That's what we're going to be, the French Prime Minister. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, yobs are back. 
Since their time in government began, the Conservatives have been fighting against antisocial behaviour, from David Cameron's Hugger Hoodie campaign, even to the attempt to rebrand Process itself as antisocial in the Police Crime and Sentencing and Courts Act. They've seldom known what to do with the young, the disenfranchised and the unruly. Problems with crime are real. Prosecution rates of burglary are only 6%, robbery at 4%. Over a million thefts went unsolved in England and Wales last year. But can you really solve all this by casting issues of deprivation, social exclusion and lack of opportunity just as hooligans who need a short, sharp shock? Jerry, if you're the Conservatives and you've provided over the firing and then rehiring of 20,000 police officers, can you still make a case that you're the ones to trust on law and order? No. Is the short answer, um, but I appreciate you want a longer answer than that. Um, <laughs> It'll be nice. It's a podcast. <laughs> Look, no, I don't think so, and I think it's because you've seen this kind of crime rates have gone down on the whole, and that's what the Tories will cling to. But I think what is really happening is people aren't reporting low level crimes. I mean, God, I know this is a anecdotal um, example, but a friend of mine had her phone nicked and she tracked it to the house that it was in. And the Met said, oh, there's not enough evidence. Um, you know, and you could see it on the map. And obviously no one's going to go around and knock and because they don't have the resources to deal with someone's phone being nicked. It's the same with bikes. People see them, you know, sold on Facebook Marketplace or Gumtree or whatever it is. And they close the case before even kind of opening it. And I think that it's actually those low-level crimes, antisocial behaviour included, that have more of an impact on people because we call them low-level, but they're not low-level because they're high-impact. The reality is, thank God, you're not often going to actually see a murder or a stabbing or something that serious, um, which obviously we're all very thankful for. But you may well be the victim of a mugging or your bike being nicked or something like that. So it's those kind of crimes which aren't being tackled that are a lot more in people's heads when they go to the ballot box. So, no, I don't think I don't think they can kind of claim to be the party of law and order as it stands. Well, the score as best at handling law and order issues has gone down according to YouGov, from 45% in March 2020 to just 22% now, and Labour is up from 13% to 25% in the same period, despite Labour barely having much to say. Steve Reid's only really just getting started, isn't he? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I had a piece in the Times on Saturday on this, which I, I, you know, I would say this, wouldn't I, but I think was really interesting, um, <laughs> which is basically looking at Labour's crime offer, and you're right, there's not much meat on the bones so far. What they're actually going to do, whether it's this kind of getting victims to sit on the boards of deciding the punishments for antisocial behaviour, which, you know, isn't quite exactly as it sounds. It's not like you're actually going to have, you know, Mrs Jones from down the road say, I want him to come and trim a hedge instead. It's not going to happen quite like that. But you've got a few little bits, um, you know, they're talking about um, accelerating rape cases and things like that, but it's the messaging for them. They're very clear they want to return and they don't shy away from this to tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. That is the message and they've got this free word slogan um, and I'm going to get them all in the wrong order, but it's uh, prevent, protect, punish, mm-hmm. um, which one Labour source described to me um, as if a dominatrix had come up with it, uh, which I thought was quite amusing. Um, but that's what they're going to do. And they're really putting it at the centre of their campaigning. We're going to have a crime week. It's actually a crime 10 days, but that doesn't sound as good. You might remember that last time there was a crime week, it was when the Tories did all their crimes. Um <laughs> So, but we're going to have a crime 10 days later this month where Labour set this all out. Hopefully there's going to be some more meat on the bone, but they see it as fertile ground is the point, right? It's where they're looking to make gains. Crime time. Crime time. 
Marie punched the air when when Crime Week was mentioned. Again, National... I just really like that. That was probably my favourite bit of like the past few years in politics. Of, like yeah. announcing Crime Week, and they're like, "Oh, you guys were doing it." Like, okay, yeah, fine. Because I think before when it was announced, I tweeted as a joke, "Oh, what crime are you guys going to do for Crime Week?" And then it was like, "Oh, it was not a joke." Like, it's just yeah. Um, it is surprising, isn't it? That I mean, we've we've had two successively increasingly hardline Home Secretaries. The current one sort of imagines herself as the kind of person who grabs anything in sight by the scruff of its neck and, and, and beats it. And yet the ratings for effectiveness just continue to go down. What are the Conservatives getting wrong on that front? I think it's an expectation thing. So I think that, you know, where the expectations that they have for the police aren't necessarily there because it's a, it's a stick rather than a carrot, right? You know, we talk about... Um, public sector pay cuts a lot. I think a lot in the police actually get paid a lot less than um, the public might consider for the fact they're you know chasing down crims and putting their lives often in danger. Um, so I think you know, Suella Brabham sending out letters to the police saying you will do this, 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 and this is what I expect of you isn't really garnering good favour. Funnily enough, um, so there's that's the one side of it. But I think what they're really getting wrong on it is the backlogs are so unmanageable that it's kind of impossible to do anything you know you have serious court cases where i'm from in norfolk um you know that you have murders committed to or alleged murders committed two years ago and it hasn't actually been to court yet that's no good for victims it's no good for defendants it's absolutely mental um, no, I was going to say just on this point as well, because I, I, I do have one friend who's a police officer and he made the point, he said, you know, and he said, you know, obviously I, I, I get why people are really mad at us, but also people have to understand that actually really often we will investigate crimes and we'll go to the CPS and they'll be like, nah, this doesn't look like it's got an absolute 100% chance of winning, so we're just not going to prosecute. Mm-hmm. And I remember like him saying actually once, because they're all really overworked as well, saying, you know, I actually took time out of stuff I really should have been doing to investigate this one thing I felt very strongly about. And then, yeah, the CPS just wouldn't do anything about it. So I think it's not just the police. You know, the courts, yeah, as you said, uh, being completely broken um, is a massive part of that as well. This is why people should watch 24 hours in police custody more, because that's always happening. You know, I've never watched it, so I will take your word for it. Give it a go. It's right right up your street. While we're on the police, Marie, um, the Inspector of Constabulary, Matt Parr, has just told The Guardian that hundreds of people have joined the police in the the last three years that we don't think should have. Uh, He included people with criminal affiliations. There have been complaints of misogyny, violence against these officers. And it's only now that it seems to be being cracked open as an issue, kind of in the wake of these horrific cases that we've had, the Sir Averard case, the, the David Carrick case. Is it harder to make the case that worked 30 years ago, tough on the crime, tough tough on the causes of crime, when we can look at the police right now and people who used to trust the police will now think twice because of what we've seen? Hmm. Um, I I still think there's there's a landing strip there for a message that says, you know, we'll reform the police so it serves you better. Mm. So I think that, that, you know, that that, that contains itself, right? You know, I think that works. But certainly not, I I do agree with you that actually you can't just do the, you know, tough on crime, tough on yobs, etc. Because again, yeah, A, quite a lot of crime is legal now. And B, again, you know, as a woman, for example, I don't trust the Met. I would probably not call the police for quite a lot of stuff. Really? Um, so, oh, like... yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, may- maybe that is slightly irrational, but also 
look at the cases we've had over the yeah. past few years, right? Um, so no, so, so I think that, you know, that there is a thing there. I think you can do a two for one there of saying actually we'll reform the police and make sure it's in fi- great fighting form so crime becomes illegal again. And, that, and that's a thing that works. But I think that only Labour can really make that case. I think the Tories, for the Tories, it's too late because they've cut so much again that when, when I'm you not say, sure you sell that. When you say crime becomes illegal again... Um, <laughs> Crime is all crimes illegal. But tell me what you mean by that. I know, but again, because we were talking about, you know, if you steal a bike or you nick someone's phone, yeah. the chances of you getting arrested, or even I'm sorry to be really serious for a moment, if you rape a woman in England today, the chances of you spending one minute in prison for it mm. are so small that you know, again, it may as well be legal. Mm. Um, so, so, so no, I mean that's what yeah. I meant. I wasn't being glib. Ian, the day sort of 18 months ago or two years ago when it was a choice between our police are wonderful and defund the police, break them up completely, have gone. It's like, as Marie's just been describing, there are plenty of people who sort of, you know, are not of the uh, radical end policing persuasion, but know that it needs reform. Why is that not really at the centre of the agenda? Hmm. I don't know. It's not really in Labour's interest to talk that way. It's sort of a weakness about... 18 months ago on Tory polling on law and order, and it has remorselessly plugged away at it to considerable effect. It doesn't, that, that advantage that it has in the polling you just mentioned is really just classic political strategy of neutralisation. You're not trying to be, they're never going to be the party of law and order. They know that they're not, but they've just neutralised one of the core Tory advantages. And yeah. they've done it through 18 months of diligent PR work, not policy, exactly as it's not policy formulated. There's really very little there, but just the proper PR work. And you look at, you, you look at the write-up, look at the write-up in the Telegraph of, of, of Labour ministers at the moment. It's just like, fucking hell, where, where am I even reading this? Like, oh, some, you know, story about, you know, how he was robbed at his phone 20 years ago. It was ago Steve Reid, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. Like, yeah. Got, got, got mugged at knife point and yeah. that, it really showed him what was going on. If, if Labour head office had written that piece and sent it to the Telegraph, they would basically have written it exactly like how it came out. So you're just like, you know, you, that is a really effective strategy. Now, that party is not going to start going, oh, now let's just do, you know, root and branch reform of the police or even the mayor. So that is just not in their interest at the moment to be talking that way. It's slightly different for Sadiq Khan, but Sadiq Khan is quite mercurial, the extent of the power and really just who has proper ownership of the Met. It's always been a bit a bit of a sort of uh, contested territory with, with the Home Office. Nevertheless... You're not, you're not, there's not really in anyone's incentive. It's like going back to the Brexit point. It's not really in anyone's incentive at the moment to be making that case. But this is probably the worst crisis policing has been through since Stephen Lawrence. Yeah. And nothing's happening. And the case is, I mean, almost unchallengeable for the need, especially with the Met, but really across the board for for deep-seated reform. You know, blame first past the post. But are you seeing it anywhere else in the political landscape that, that, that's, that the germs of ideas that might make their way a little bit closer to the heart of politics? But maybe a shadow Home Secretary can't stand up and say, I've got a great idea, but perhaps, I hate to say it, a thought leader out there somewhere. I suppose a bit. Let me, I mean, you see it in some parts of sort of left-wing thought, there's, there's a bit more of a structured thought about it. But I would also, let me put the defence for Labour, I suppose, which is that if you look quite closely at what it's saying as a party, I think you can find... Uh, a more sort of liberal approach hiding away underneath the text. So you take that stuff with, uh, that you're mentioning on the co- on the victims in the community sentencing. Okay, but what's happened is community sentencing has basically died. Okay, part of the reason for that is because of the reform of probation to privatise it, then those companies fell apart and judges were just like, I'm not fucking sentencing someone to a, com- you know, to a community order that I don't even know who is going to provide it. They're not here in court to tell me what they're going to do. So it just died and sentencing became much tougher. Now, rule one, like... Of the, there are very few things that you absolutely know for certain in policy making in this issue. The one thing we know for certain is that short sentences don't work. 
Okay, and to their credit, David Gork and Rory Stewart, when they were in charge of it, did their best to try and get rid of it, and then they were shuffled off, and it switched to being authoritarian again. We know short prison sentences do not work. They are a waste of money, they're a waste of lives, and they don't protect future victims. So on that basis, when Labour says, we're going to, all of this kind of Blairite marched them to the cash machine hogwash about, oh, the victim will sit on the fact, it's just like, yeah, whatever, it's bullshit. But underneath that text is, we're going to make community sentences work. And if you're making community sentences work, it means that you're getting rid of short prison sentences. And that is a decent progressive thing to do. Meanwhile, Braverman seems to be doing her best to link law and order to the culture war. Uh, in September, she said that in- initiatives on diversity and inclusion should not take precedence over common sense policing. And like, <laughs> you never know what common sense policing is. Um, it does seem kind of not just irresponsible, but kind of, you know, bad politics. If you're trying to if you're trying to recreate your reputation for law and order to just go off into this fantasy land of it's all about woke. Yeah, and look, I think that the reason that she's often saying these kind of things is that she doesn't want police to, I don't know, go around and knock on the door of someone that might have said something a bit nasty on Twitter. And look, there are some actual pretty shocking examples of where things like that have happened. But obviously, it's like tiny, tiny numbers of cases that get blown up into massive stories by people like me. Um, But uh, (laughs) look, so... I think there's a point, but she's trying to clasp onto it, isn't she? To to really galvanise that base that she thinks she can win back support in those those people that say stop the boats at any 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 cost and um, you know bring back the death penalty and those type of people. So, sorry, government would I assume rather police officers didn't march in pride parades, for example, which is a brilliant example of community policing. Really builds good bonds with uh, with communities that have been traditionally, for good reason, suspicious of the police. Um, it's a really good initiative, but I imagine that would fall into the woke category as well. Um, and when you talk about common sense policing, well, I, that, is, that, that is pretty commonsensical to me, frankly. Finally, this podcast isn't the only place that's got tired of the royals. In Australia, they've announced that the $5 note will no longer carry the face of the British sovereign. So you won't be able to pay for your Nick Cave album or a couple of dimmies with extra soy sauce with money that's got Charles's face on it. This raises the question, who should be on the money anyway? Ian, you're a huge Prince Charles fan. King Charles. I can't, Charles. Get, can't get used to call him King Charles. <laughs> Does it matter that he's not on the Australian money anymore? Incidentally, I don't feel great that my opinion on this, which I don't think is one of my core intellectual opinions, is now just completely defined by persona. You've got a tattoo brain. of King Charles. I do, I do. I have it in a very intimate location and only three people have ever seen it. Um Right. What was the question again? Does it matter that the Australians don't want to have King Charles on the money anymore? No, it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. I don't understand why they have any of them. In fact, they won't anymore. This is the last one to get rid of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, no, it doesn't matter. I mean, nobody gives a shit. People hung on to the Queen because she was very old. It would seem mean. Well, I, I think it's it's like a it's like a change in monarch is like a jumping off point. This is a comics metaphor, which no one's going <laughs> to oh, understand. I understand it. Keep talking. Yeah, okay, right. So, like, you know, the, if you if you get a point where a storyline ends in a comic, you know, you could have comics that go on for like fucking like three hundred, four hundred issues, whatever. People are kind of looking for a reason to stop reading it. So, yeah. if you stop storylines too definitively and change a team, it, it's not just a jumping on point for new readers. It's a jumping off point for those who kind of were looking for a reason. And I think that's what a change in monarch is for a saying? lot of these countries. They're like, no, it's not even that they really love the queen or really dislike him. It's just like there's a change moment, so we can just get rid of all these bits. So you're saying that the Queen dying is like when Gwen Stacy died, exactly. and you could stop reading Spider-Man if you wanted to. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. What, what is the purpose of the faces we put on the money? Are they kind of reacting, you know, reflecting the nation's soul? 
back or, or, or what? There really isn't one. Is I mean, maybe I'd be surprised and lots of people feel very passionate. I'm sure they do. I'm always extraordinarily surprised by all the things people do feel very passionately about. And they would think that it really is something that binds us and unites us as a nation and our stories. And I just sort of think you just don't even really notice the majority of the time. You know, even when someone new is put on, like Jane Austen, you know, just like, I didn't really notice when any of this took place. And it doesn't help now that nobody actually uses money anymore. Well, there is that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's a practical well, point. There should be a little, when you use your card, a face should pop up on the screen of the thing that they hold in. You know, it should be, oh, it's Jane. It, it's Jane Austen. Oh, it's Winston <laughs> so on our current money, we've got Winston Churchill, Jane Austen, J.M.W. Turner, and Alan Turing's on the £50 notes. Hmm. First gay guy to be on any money, but they put him on the 50 that nobody ever sees. Thanks for that. <laughs> you know, but that's, and previously we've had Isaac Newton, Florence Nightingale, Shakespeare, Charles Dickens, Elgar. Nosing around, I found that Walter Raleigh was approved in 1964. It's got a long time ago for, you know, putting people, but uh, it was never issued. So Walter Raleigh could go on the money now, except guy's a colonizer. And that's not a very good look now, is it? So you probably won't get Walter Raleigh on the money. No, and I can't imagine, oh God, I can actually see a world in which the Tories in opposition make this discovery as well and say, well, <laughs> why shouldn't we do it now? I think the Conservatives will put the black yeah. and white minstrels on the money if they could these days, half of them, the way it's, the way it's going. The new Australian $100 note has got the engineer Sir John Monash on one side and Dame Nellie Melba, who is the only one that I'd heard of, the great opera singer, on the other. And there's loads of Australians that are obviously well-loved and known within Australia and you know, the rest of the world is not very familiar with. They have, however, been featuring Indigenous Australian art since the 1960s, which is quite, you know, forward-looking. Marie, how, how, how well do you feel France is represented on the euro, or don't you care? Uh, so, I mean, A, I don't care at all, but B, actually, like, you know, I, I was wondering, because I saw that question in the script, and I was like, hang on, I actually could not tell you off the top of my head uh, what the design is. So I Googled it, and I'm just going to read out the description, because I think... That my words wouldn't do justice how boring it is. Um, so the one and two euro French coin features a tree symbolising life, continuity and growth, standing within a hexagon and encircled by the motto of the French Republic. All right. Incredibly boring. Just, uh, it's just well, a trees tree. Trees are so French. So it, Nobody uh, else has they? them. But no, yeah, no, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, so only founded France. Unbelievable. So it, we, yeah, we have that. And then for the smaller coins, we've got Marianne, which... Obviously. She's good. Yeah, no, no, but she's yellow, yellow. You don't mess with the classics, but no, very dull coins. The euro in general, the euro notes in general, it's got lots of bridges on them, haven't they? they yes, but it was no thing of like most of them were made up, like they're not real what? bridges. Well, like Minecraft. So, uh, yes, I've never played Minecraft, okay. so I have no idea. Okay, yeah, I've just checked. They are actually completely fake bridges, which is just such a lovely, useless fact. Money is lying to us. Hmm? Again. Jerry, I mean, how, how does it matter that, you know, print currency is this, this con not hugely contested, but mildly contested thing? I mean, Serbia and Croatia are odds are about whether Nikolai Tesla is going to go on the money. Serbia wants to put him there. But they're all joining the euro anyway, so it won't matter. They'll just have made up bridges like everybody else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to completely, um, you know, rubbish the last five minutes of conversation, but who cares? Um, <laughs> like, you know, if, if you can pay for your goods and services in some way, then does it really matter? I would like to see someone like um, do you remember Guy Gomer that guy that stumbled in from a job interview on yeah. the BBC and ends up on the news Some, like a real British legend like him that's who I'd really like to well, see we, we on the notes we can't have him because the rules are and the Bank of England says if you look for UK characters who have made an important contribution to our society 
Fair it enough. Has. <laughs> uh, through the innovation leadership or values, we do not include fictional characters or people who are still living. So you've got to be dead to get. Okay, so on the, on the bright side, you can kill him, and you probably will not go to prison. Very so, true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so who do we think should? I mean, let's imagine that it matters. Because I actually do think it matters. I think it's kind of like it's a little sort of rough idea if we think matters in in our society. Who should we have on British money? David Bowie. He's dead. Everybody loved him. Possibly. Sure. Yeah. Because I I mentioned that, and somebody said, "Yeah, but it's slightly dodgy past." There was a lot of 1970s rock behaviour, shall we say. Um, Stephen Hawking would be good. Yeah, sure. Um, I was thinking Ada Lovelace in that kind of general vibe. Yep. Lennon, John Har- uh, George Harrison. i tell you who the country I'd love. Captain Sir Tom Moore. Oh, my God. Oh, no, God. No, oh, God. No. We would vanish in a cloud <laughs> of sentimental bullshit. Yes. Well, you know, being serious about it for a minute, everybody on the money so far has been white, and there's only been three women. So Captain Sir Tom might have to wait a little bit. There was uh, a campaign called Banknotes of Colour where they were uh, trying to get Mary Seacole on the money uh, or Noor Inayat Khan, who was a British World War II secret agent. Oh, she, there was a really good Doctor Who episode about her. She was in it, wasn't she? Yes, she was really good, yes. Um, but also possibly Arthur Wharton, not only England's, but in fact the world's first black professional footballer would be a good person to have on the money. There does seem to be a bias against sports people on money. You don't see sports people. On we were talking before we started recording, possibly Pele on the Brazilian money, but pretty much anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, the thing you is... You hate sport, though, don't you? Exactly. So you could put them on, and not only do I not really know who's on the notes anyway, I'd just be like, that's another person I don't know on the notes that I'm not looking at. So yeah. I, I can't really substantiate or challenge your claims here. Might just... as well be a made-up bridge. Exactly. Wayne Bridge. Well, let's finish with a nightmare scenario. The site Money Guru did a survey to see which politician... Uh, British people, in heavy quotes, would like on the money. Uh, number one, Margaret Thatcher, 45% of respondents. Jesus fucking Christ. Have you got, <laughs> have you got train change for a Thatcher? <laughs> number two, at 16%, can you guess who it is? Stop looking at the script, Marie. <laughs> Farage on the money. I mean, he's not dead, but, you know. And that Tony Blair? Tony Blair comes in at fifth on 10%. Oh. Ahead of him is Boris Johnson, and oh. ahead of Boris Johnson is Jeremy Corbyn. Who doesn't even believe in money? Oh my God. <laughs> Thinks money is bad and wrong. Who would be the funniest politician to have on the note? I feel like Peter Mandelson would be very chic. Like, that'd oh, be a I'd very like, elegant note. Absolutely, mm. uh, yes. Michael um, Fabricant. Michael Fabricant. Oh, you'd, you'd have to really get on the detail on the hair, wouldn't you? Oh wow! Oh. Yeah. People would think it was Dougal from the Magic Roundabout. In this poll, three percent of people thought Jeremy Hunt should be on the money. So that's unhinged enough that I really want it to happen now. Like, I may start my campaign today well, to get Jamie Hunt on the note. Fingers crossed. Um, well, the, the, the next, who knows when the next series of money is out, but uh, there's a kind of a cultural kind of gulf that, that, that certain people can't cross. They don't have any, they never have musicians or sports people involved. It's got to be the kind of, very much the canon. Sorry, I, I just amused myself thinking of Neil Kinnock notes. Um, oh, that'd you be great. Continue. Only in Wales. <laughs> We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for escape routes. What movies, TV shows, and books about hyper-intelligent spiders are keeping our panellists occupied this week? Ian. Uh, Elizabeth Strout novels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read Olive Ketteridge when I was away, uh, and it just fucking, just absolutely destroyed me. And kind of introduced me to like a whole kind of fiction that I don't think I'd really bothered to try before, which is actually about people's internal lives <laughs> and, you know, what it, what it is that like the tiny tragedies rather than this is the thing. 
rather than the kind of state of the nation novel where you'd get like a personal story, but the, the point of the personal story, divorce or whatever, was to talk about, oh, how the country is really polarized. You know, it was always yeah. as a metaphor. Jonathan Coe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or Franz, Franz, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, this was just like, no, no, this just, we're just going to talk about someone's life because it's just really interesting to talk about the minutiae of people's lives and the little tragedies that they experience. And also, I think if I'm completely like 100% honest, I probably haven't really read that many female authors in my life. And I certainly hadn't read very many books where the protagonist would be like a woman in her 60s living yeah. in a small town, you know. And once you read it, I read it and then I read a book that, I'm, that I think lots of people do love and I'm not going to mention here. But like the way that the guy was describing female characters, like every time a, a woman walked by him, he was like, and I did just feel the gentle curve of her breast against my arm. But he's just like... Oh, fuck. There's, a, there's actually a phrase for that. Um, so I think on Twitter, it's now been called the she breasted boobily. I've seen that, yes. Anyway, it, it, it sort of, I've been reading that stuff without even recognising it all my life. And suddenly it was like I had. So now I'm just devouring Elizabeth Stratton novels. If you haven't read her, I would strongly, strongly recommend that you do. And I would start with Olive Kesteridge. Amazing. Jerry. Well, I went to see Hamilton for the one millionth time on Friday night. Uh, but my other half, my boyfriend, is a um, kind of former theatre critic that still has his hand in a bit nowadays. So it's 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 never really a relaxed time at the theatre for me um, <laughs> because it's quite often, oh, have you seen that backdrop? Or, oh, that's a really good change of costume or something like that. But in terms of reading, I don't get to do much reading um, now. Although on Saturday I was reading um, exam scripts for journalism students because what? I really know how to have fun in my spare time and that's what I do with my weekends would you recommend that um, I would not what are, <laughs> what are they asking them these days What's, what are tomorrow's journalists being told to tomorrow's with? journalists are being asked to do breaking news stories very quickly and then to add to it with a video uh, press conference and then they're asked a lot of ethical questions they need to be very ethical today's journalists um, oh so there we go that's boring isn't it I'm just glad journalists have been taught ethics. What happened in my day? Marie, what about you? Oh, so I am currently reading Under the Frog by Tabor Fisher, uh, which I kind of picked up at random. And it's I mean, it's one of those slightly weird books. So it kind of tracks the lives of a group of male friends, of like young men uh, in Hungary in the 40s and 50s, which makes it sound like the most depressing book alive, when actually like I could not remember the last time a book has made me laugh out loud that often. It is just so funny. And obviously like, it, it is still really realistic about how bleak it was. And it's, it's a novel, but still, you know, how bleak it was to live in Hungary in those years. But genuinely just incredibly, incredibly funny and sharp writer. Um, so, yeah, and I w- would really, really recommend it. I'm having a ball. Like, one of those where I think I've only got about 100 pages left and I'm already a bit sad is going to mm. end because I've been the weirdo on the tube just laughing out loud and I don't <laughs> want that to end. So, basically, to take your mind off politics in Britain in 2023, you've gone back to 1950s communist Hungary. Yeah. Because it's <laughs> such a great and pleasant contrast. I- again, you know, I, I really are very much picked this up. Cards on the table, I picked it up in uh, my local stations, you know, leave books and take books, All right. thing, mm-hmm. which is like the stakes were incredibly low. I was like, I'll just pick this up. I, I feel like it's going to be really dark. So, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure I'll put it back in two days. And yeah, no, instead, Jenny, like hysterical. Fantastic. Oh, God. Well, I've gone back even further because I'm reading a book called The Blazing World, A New History of Revolutionary England by Jonathan Healy. And I just got a horrible pang that this was a huge chunk of English history that I knew absolutely nothing about. Vague thoughts about the gunpowder plot and, and some a couple of King Charles's and that's about it. This thing is absolutely electrifying. If you thought Britain was mad now... 
this will convince you that Britain has all England has always been insane to its core. The things that take place, the characters we run into, James the First with his favourites and his his uh, the, the chicanery and the way that uh, you know the, the way that he treats Parliament. Obviously, this results in very very bad endings for uh, for King Charles. You push Parliament around a little bit too much. Somebody should have told Boris Johnson what happens if you run around proroguing things. It doesn't work out well for you. But it's just the most lucid, fantastically paced um, history of of a hundred years of chaos, misery, heads on sticks, um, political experimentation, but also political evolution, because basically it it appears to be the time at which the common person, the average urchin like me, got to think about politics for the first time and got to see themselves as a participant in what's happening in England. And I've got to say, it's fantastic. And I'm going to be doing a bunker daily with Jonathan Healy in a few weeks about this. Can't wait to talk to him. It's a fantastic read. And it's out now, The Blazing World. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Thank you, Marie LeConte. Thanks. Thank you, Ian Dunst. Thank you very much. And thank you, Jerry Scott. Thank you. We'll be back on Friday. Or if you like the podcast a little earlier, you can back us on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get episodes early, bonus content like our Thursday Extra Bit and our Monday minicast, Oh God, What Else? As well as exclusive bonuses like merchandise and early access to the live show tickets, like the one that's happening on the 15th of February. As I say, there's a link to tickets in the show notes for this edition, so please come along. Before then, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the traditional thank you to some of our Patreon backers. Hello and thank you from me to Paula West, Callum McFarlane, Martin Bishop, Matt Adams, Greg Lane and Lindsay Dickinson. Many thanks and best wishes to Michael Zorbass, Lawrence Masterson, Paula Mitchell, Gillian Rocheville, Mick Cahill and Ned Parr. And finally, big thanks from me to Kurt Dewhurst, Richard Clegg, Kieran, Johannes Hoffman, Victoria and Mark Saddington. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the end of the week for another episode. Oh, God, what now? It was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Marie LeConte and Ian Dunt. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis with additional production from Kasia Tomasiewicz, Jack Gerbertson and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh, God, what now? is a Podmasters production. We'll be right back.